Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Today on the program, we will hear the views of U.S. House candidate Liz Cheney. The Republican will give her views on energy, education, and health care, among other things. U.S. Senator Mike Enzi will also join us. We'll also have some stories. Wyoming has not always embraced renewable energy, but as the state faces a historic bust, would that be changing? Either we in- embrace it or we wave goodbye to it. In 2014, a building at the Wyoming Women's Center was renovated for the purpose of housing inmate mothers and their children. But because of staffing issues, it's been empty ever since. And we'll speak with the chair of the National Endowment for the Arts, Jane Chu. It's all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. As the presidential contest rolls on, some Wyoming lawmakers are worried that issues important to the state, such as energy, being left out of the debate. While there was some recent discussion about it, it's not being discussed as much as some would prefer. Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington. Have you heard many Western issues pop up in this election? Neither has Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis. She says the Republican presidential candidate is actually missing a golden opportunity to attract independent voters in the West. Uh, I know that Western issues um, are taking a backseat to national issues in this campaign, and I, I, I get that. Uh, but when we're out in the West, when states like Colorado and Nevada are in play, there are issues that are unique to the West that a presidential candidate can capitalize on. But Lummis is hopeful that Western issues are about to rise to the national stage. The fact that Colorado and Nevada are still in play and that Nevada will be, I believe, a side of the third debate um, is the only opportunity for us to highlight issues that are of unique concern to the West. Still, Lummis isn't hedging her bets, so she says she's going to be proactive this fall. I will be uh, approaching uh, the Trump campaign uh, during the October campaign period uh, about issues that matter to Colorado and Nevada uh, in hopes that they will come up not only during the debate but during uh, the campaign's efforts in both Colorado and Nevada. Wyoming's junior Senator John Barrasso was chairman of the Platform Committee at the Republican National Convention. He says he's already won Trump's ear. I met with Donald Trump twice before the convention to talk about the platform, talk about energy, talk about health care. As a doctor, he's embraced the issues that I've talked about. I'd like to see even more discussion of those on the campaign trail uh, because I think they're winning issues for those of us who really want to make sure we use American energy in a way that continues to keep our country strong. Even though Wyoming's issues aren't coming up, Barrasso is confident that Trump will embrace issues important to this state. And anybody that takes a look at that platform knows that there is a big footprint affecting the Rocky Mountain West in terms of the things that are important for us, uh, in terms of public lands, in terms of the use of uh, the resources that we have. While that platform hasn't been brought up much on the campaign trail, 
Barrasso says it adds to the argument to put Republicans back in charge of Congress in January. So it's going to be a big impact as long as we are able to maintain the majority and have a Republican in the White House who will then sign into law the conservative, energy-related, Rocky Mountain West issues that we can put on the president's desk. For Wyoming senior Senator Mike Enzi, the election is all about the Supreme Court. Well, one thing I've noticed is that uh, uh, the Democrats keep coming back with the same thing over and over again until they win. And if they can get a Supreme Court that'll help them out, then they can win. Enzi doubts the upcoming presidential debate out west will have a real impact on anything. The biggest thing that's been missing in the debates is the question of how are you going to do that? That said, Enzi says he's not in love with the political reality TV we've all been witnessing recently. I'm not really in favor of debates anyway because... Uh, Nobody is expected to make a spur-of-the-moment decision on issues that are brought up that they may not have considered before. Uh, When you're in office, you get a lot of people helping you to do research. Hopefully you're checking with the community that's going to be affected by it to see what they think about it, and then you make up your mind. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. Changing topics, in 2015, Wyoming passed the Food Freedom Act, giving the state's farmers and ranchers the most flexible food rules in the nation, making it possible for them to sell things direct to consumers that are illegal elsewhere, like unpasteurized milk, poultry, jams, and other foods. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards talked with the author of the new book, Biting the Hands That Feed Us, How Fewer, Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable, about Wyoming's Food Freedom Act, and just how common this level of deregulation is in other states. It is highly uncommon, and uh, Wyoming is to be uh, commended, as I do in the book, uh, for this bipartisan piece of legislation that really, I think, is a model for how we can help uh, deregulate uh, the food system in many states. And I think uh, there have been a couple others that have followed suit, I believe Colorado and uh, Utah. And I think Maine has considered uh, legislation that's uh, based on Wyoming's Food Freedom Act, but but was not uh, successful in passing that. But it's a a wonderful example of the sort of uh, good food law, I think, that, uh, that I'd love to see in states around the country. And how has the USDA kind of responded to Wyoming's laws and and some of the proposals for for this type of deregulation elsewhere? Uh, It uh, probably won't surprise you, but they're not very happy. A couple of weeks ago, actually, uh, there were some USDA food safety and inspection service agents who I believe went to a farmer's market uh, in Wyoming and who uh, were unhappy with some turkey chili that was being served there. Uh, this is bizarre because it's uh, you know a local farmers market. Uh, this would be like FDA or USDA agents, uh, you know, showing up at a, a potluck dinner at your church. And I wasn't present, so I can't say for sure what happens. But it, it appears from what I've read uh, that they uh, harassed uh, people who were selling some turkey chili and uh, you know uh, ordered them not to sell it uh, without somehow also identifying themselves as being from the Food Safety Inspection Service at USDA. What are some of the laws that you feel are impeding um, small farmers and ranchers the most? Uh, One good example, actually, in which Wyoming's uh, Food Freedom Act doesn't uh, address because uh, the USDA, uh, in that case, has uh, supremacy, and that is the, uh, the process for animal slaughter. So 
since 1967, as I describe in the book, there have been, uh, the USDA was handed the authority by Congress essentially to order that all meats that are going to be sold must have passed through a USDA inspected facility. There's been dramatic consolidation in those facilities so that now farmers and ranchers often have to go dozens, hundreds or more miles uh, just to bring their cattle to be slaughtered and processed uh, you know, before they might bring that back. So what they're left with is the option either to spend a lot of money to transport their animals very, very far away to a facility where their lovingly raised uh, cattle are going to be commingled with uh, cattle that were confined, uh, you know, perhaps never had a name. And so farmers often find, the smaller farmers often find that what they get back isn't what they sent away. And so slaughterhouse rules, I think, are really one of the, the key rules that need to be reformed and that could uh, lead to a, a much more locally and, and sustainably raised uh, regime for uh, farmers and ranchers in this country. Do you mind talking about the um, the recent, the 2011 Food Safety Modernization Act, um, or FISMA, um, and how it's affecting small food producers? I mean, by the name, it sounds like, um, you know, that the uh, food safety rules needed some revamping. Can you talk a little bit about that act? Sure. Uh, so the law was signed uh, by President Obama in January 2011. And yeah, sure, certainly the uh, the nation's food safety rules were, were written in the uh, mostly in the 1930s, and uh, in, in many cases were due for an update. I actually cheer on the FDA now has the authority to recall food that's shown to be tainted uh, under the Food Safety Modernization Act. That's a power they never had before until these rules, and I think that that's uh, a power that they should have. That said, uh, by the FDA's own estimates, the Food Safety Modernization Act is going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and it's only going to make our food uh, at best marginally safer. And, and by marginally, I mean somewhere between, and these are best case FDA estimates, somewhere between one and 3% safer. So for hundreds of millions of dollars, we're not getting much improvement in food safety, but what we are getting uh, is food producers all around the country, particularly smaller and, and sustainable ones, uh, who are scared to death because this means, uh, in many cases, $10,000 or more of additional costs uh, for very, very small farms. What are we starting to see the effects um, in these states that are being able to deregulate? How is that um, affecting the local food movements there and uh, the ability of ranchers and farmers to, to prosper? Oh, it's wonderful. When you, uh, you know, deregulate the, uh, the sales on the farm, you, you find uh, more farmers and, and more uh, flourishment amongst the, the existing farmers. From Based on what I've heard in, in Wyoming, that's, uh, that's been the case. I think there's, uh, but I've heard that there have been uh, radio ads for the first time in a long time bought by local farmers uh, who are selling uh, milk and whatnot. Uh, and of course, there's, you know, for those who, who prefer not to buy from uh, from the farm and, and who prefer to buy in the grocery store, this doesn't impact them one bit. Those foods are still available. Um, this is just giving consumers more choice. And, uh, and when that happens, I think uh, everyone wins. When we come back, we'll sit down with the Republican candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives, Liz Cheney. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. 
Liz Cheney is the Republican candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives. She's a former Fox News commentator, an author, the co-founder of the Alliance for a Strong America, a former U.S. State Department official and attorney. She's also the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. Cheney says she continues to support Donald Trump for president and worries about working with a Hillary Clinton administration. She's also concerned about Republicans losing ground in the House and the Senate. I asked her if she will drop her hardline stance and work across the aisle to get things accomplished for Wyoming. Yeah, I I guess I I look at it differently. You probably won't be surprised to hear that. Um, You know, I think that, you know, when I, if I am elected and I go to Washington as Wyoming's representative, I don't view my job as going there to achieve compromise. I view my job as going to Washington to make sure that every single day I'm doing what's in the very best interest of the people of Wyoming. And sometimes that will mean reaching across the aisle. I think coal is a perfect example. And in my experience, you know, what counts is doing your homework and being willing to sit across the table from people who might not agree with you on every issue and find areas where you can agree. And so, you know, if you look at coal, um, I'm sure that there are members around the country who probably don't agree with me on everything, but they don't want to see the utility rates for their constituents go up. Uh, do you bang your head against the wall on the coal issue or do you also say at some point, you know, we, we've got, we can be a player in the renewables industry as well and so we need to do both? I don't think it's a choice. I think that in terms of coal, it's not about banging your head against the wall. It's about educating people. And, and we have to do a far better job at making sure people outside Wyoming recognize um, that it's not sort of, uh, you know, a choice. We don't have the option to be able to say, you know what, let's let the president's policy stand because the coal industry is just too important for us nationwide. And we've got to have a representative who is able to carry that case nationwide and, and not afraid to stand up and say, yeah, absolutely, I'm going to stand up on behalf of these fossil fuels. I don't believe the people who say this is dirty energy, they're wrong. Uh, these are national treasures and I'm going to fight for them. Still, shouldn't we also be a player, though, in the renewable side? Yeah, look, I think we need to do all of the above. Um, but I fundamentally disagree with, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars of government subsidies that have really been wasted in too many instances on renewables. I don't have a problem with, you know, looking for ways that we can make sure we're using every resource we have to be energy independent. But I also think we have to acknowledge the truth, which is that we cannot run the country on renewables. And there is no path no matter how much time you take between where we are today um, and a country running on renewables, you can't get there. And we shouldn't try to get there because we have this unbelievable resource of coal and oil and gas. And we know that's what the country needs to be able to get economic growth going again. Still, a lot of companies are starting to transition and they frankly have to. One, one might wonder that they're moving ahead with things just because this is where they think everything's going. Companies are making these decisions because they've had to, because they've looked to see, okay, well, the clean power plan under this administration and certainly under Hillary isn't going to be going away probably. I mean, we're waiting for the decision in the D.C. Circuit. But, um, you know, if it's a Hillary Clinton presidency, then it's going to be a different kind of a fight. But I think we have to, you know, those of us um, who recognize and understand the importance of fossil fuels have to be in a position where we're saying, now, how is it that the people that are pushing um, the keep it in the ground cause have been so effective? How is it they've organized themselves? How are they funded? 
And we have to find ways to be able to match that and better it. Republican candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives Liz Cheney is visiting with us. I want to change gears and talk a little bit about education. What at the federal level can be done to improve specifically K-12 education? Uh, well, I think getting the federal government out of the way. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, the period of time for which we've had a Department of Education, um, there's a negative correlation over that period of time between the existence of the Department of Education at a federal level and um, how our kids and our schools are doing. And I look at this issue, you know, as a mom, and, and I we have five kids today. Three of them are still in K through 12. And... Um, it's it's a real problem. I mean, Common Core, for example, I think has got to go. I think it has to be repealed. Um, when you when you look at the combination of the curriculum, which is wrong and which is teaching our kids, you know, things that it shouldn't be teaching them, um, the massive numbers of standardized tests our kids have to take today, and and the teachers who are shackled by it, the teachers who really want to do their job. Um, we have incredible teachers in this state. My kids have incredible teachers. But in too many instances, their hands are tied by the new Common Core rules and restrictions and the standardized tests, so they can't do what they love, and they can't figure out how each individual kid learns best. And I also don't like the big data piece of Common Core. So I think we, we ought to get back to letting our local school systems and our parents and our teachers have more control over education. Some of them like Common Core, though, in some of the school districts in our state. They'd be allowed to continue if they like. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with Common Core, though, is you have a, a situation now where, you know, you've got sort of one or two companies that have really captured the textbook industry for Common Core, one or maybe two companies that have captured the test, test for Common Core. And I'll give you a specific example. Um, you know, Common Core has these textbooks called the Journeys Readers, and they, they've just adopted in Park County. Um, and here's a problem, you know, one of the most, maybe the most revolutionary concept at the heart of our founding as a nation is the idea that our rights come from God and the, we institute the government to guarantee those rights. They're inalienable. The government is instituted by us to protect them. Well, the Journeys readers say just the opposite. The Journeys readers say that in the United States, um, the government gives the citizens their rights. And that's really damaging and, and subversive in many ways. And I can't say it was intentionally subversive, but I, it's wrong. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't strip out one of the most important notions at, at the center of our founding and have these textbooks that are common core textbooks teaching our kids something wrong about it. If a teacher, though, brought that up in the classroom as they're teaching, and it's not in some common core textbooks, but it's a good old-fashioned Wyoming teacher who, who raises some interesting viewpoints that you may not dis, uh, may not agree with, that's okay though, right? Don't you want an exchange of ideas? Of course. I think an exchange of ideas is really important. But I think too often what's happened in education today is um, that there's sort of a liberal progressive set of ideas that's being pushed. And if you say anything that is in opposition to those ideas, and you know, man-made climate change is a perfect example of that. Um, and I, I applaud what's been done in terms of the science standards to try to avoid um, the using the original science standards, which were very anti-fossil fuels. But there's this dogma that really, you know, too often it comes from our colleges of education. And um, we, we're no longer allowing the kind of exchange of ideas that benefits our system and our society. 
let's talk a little bit about uh, the Wind River Reservation. There's, there's been some concern about funding for health care there. Um, we're, we're hearing more about crime on the reservation. Obviously, that has become a federal issue. So I'm, I'm curious yeah. what, what you've been hearing and what you'd like to do there, maybe to, to address both those areas. Well, I think, um, you know, the situation on the reservation is is really tragic in a lot of ways and um, got to be in a position where we're making sure that people have opportunity, people have hope. And I think that that's complicated in some instances um, by the history. I, I just think making sure that we're doing everything possible, especially for young people, to make sure that they have every opportunity available to them. But you've got huge problems with drugs, huge problems with crime, with alcoholism, with broken families. Um, the kinds of things that you see in other parts of our country, in inner cities, for example. And um, it's that real fabric of society that I think we've got to do everything we can to help rebuild. Senator Enzi was in here the other day, and, and we were talking about the Affordable Care Act, and we were talking about specifically reforms. And, and we've touched on this in the past, but he was saying after the election, we've got to get after this. This is something where you got to reach across the aisle. And it does sound like both presidential candidates would be open to some discussion. I mean, what would you like to see change there? Yeah, I think you have to start with repealing it. I think it's been even worse than people thought it would be. And, and we're about to see the a whole new series of taxes hit people come 2017. And so I think you have to start with repeal. And then I think that you have to allow people to buy insurance across state lines. Um, you know, for me, the key is you want to make sure people, patients and their families and their doctors are making medical decisions. And to put people in the driver's seat, you have to force insurance companies to compete for their business. You know, when we're in a situation like we are today where there's one insurance company covering the state, um, people aren't going to be able to get the choice that they really need. They aren't going to be able to get the policies that are tailored to their needs. And frankly, Republicans and Democrats alike have... Um, you know, done what they can to defend the insurance companies in too many instances. And, and I just think you've got to, you know, have market forces and competition inserted into the process. And I also think we have to have tort reform. Um, I also believe we have to have portability. That has to be part of whatever new system we put in place so that when you're facing an economic downturn like we are right now and you lose your job, you don't also automatically lose your insurance. And pre-existing condition coverage is also very important. Um, so that people can't be denied coverage because of pre-existing conditions. So I think those are all things that have to be part of a solution. And fundamentally, though, we have to put people at the center of it, not the government, and introduce some market competition that helps tailor the kind of care and policies people can get. And the last question on this point is just how do you keep everybody from losing their insurance if they've been going through the Affordable Care Act? How do we make sure that if you do repeal it, that we don't hurt those people? I think that's really important. We can't pull the rug out from under people. And I think that what we have to do is make sure that, you know, when the repeal happens, there's something that can replace it right away and that you take into account the need for people, you know, as I said, not to automatically be kicked off, not to lose their insurance, you know, when you're going through this process. But, but it has to be fixed. And um, fixing it, in my view, requires repealing it. Balancing the budget, I imagine, is a key part of what you want to see happen. Um, how do we get there to your satisfaction? I mean, what? But how do you yeah. get? I think that you know Congress has an obligation to make hard choices, and the system we're operating under now is basically you know this Budget Control Act and sequestration, which was put in place a couple of years ago when Congress couldn't come to agreement, and 
they said, well, we're going to make this list of all these really draconian cuts because we think if we do that and that's the alternative, then we'll be forced to come to agreement. Well, of course, it didn't force them to come to agreement. And so the cuts are in place. And it's had this this effect of, you know, 50 percent of the cuts are coming out of the Defense Department. I believe what you have to do is say, all right, look, the federal government is doing too much today and we can't afford everything it's doing. But there are things we have to have it do, like defend the nation. And so we've got to be in a situation where we're willing to cut agencies, where we're willing to cut the size of agencies and cut their budgets. And certainly I'd say the EPA is at the top of my list. And then we have to be able to say, look, you know, how do we get economic growth going again in the country? And the kind of growth that really will help us begin to to take care of our debt. And I think that comes from, um, you know, that kind of economic policies that cut taxes and that allow people to invest and keep more of their own money and, and have the private sector create jobs again. Good luck with the rest of your campaigning. Liz Cheney, always a pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. Bob. Great to be with you. Wyoming Public Radio will simulcast the Wyoming congressional debate with Wyoming PBS this Thursday at 7 p.m. Bob Beck will be one of the panelists. When we come back, a story on wind energy and a conversation with Senator Mike Enzi. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. There are few places in the country with more wind energy potential than Wyoming. But the state has seen almost no new wind turbines built in six years, even while wind has boomed in the rest of the country. Depending on who you ask, the challenges have been political, technical, or both. But now the outlook is improving on all fronts. Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce reports. Renewable energy has not always been welcomed with open arms in Wyoming. If wind doesn't provide some form of significant benefit to the state of Wyoming, I don't care if it's here. That was State Senator Ogden Driscoll in May. He sits on the legislature's revenue committee, which was talking about increasing the state's tax on wind energy, the only such tax in the nation. The increase was proposed as a way to help offset revenue shortfalls from the crash in coal, oil, and gas prices. And initially, it seemed to have considerable support. But when the tax hike actually came up for a vote in September, it failed overwhelmingly. Even Driscoll voted against it. During more than five hours of public comment to the committee, not a single person spoke in favor of the tax hike not even the half-dozen fossil fuel lobbyists in the room. And dozens of wind company representatives, lobbyists, and local government officials spoke against it, saying it would kill wind projects. We just won't be able to do it. Senator Ray Peterson said raising taxes would send the wrong message. Either we embrace it or we wave goodbye to it. The show of support was unprecedented. Lloyd Drain is the former director of the Wyoming Infrastructure Authority and now a wind energy consultant. He says even though the mission of his agency was to diversify the state's economy. It was a chore and I got heat at times, you know, being an advocate for wind, which actually diversifies the, the economy. But Drain says with the downturn in the mineral industry, it's a good time for Wyoming to embrace wind. Name me one other industry that... One other project, I don't care, anywhere in the state from from east to west and north to south, name one project that's even a billion dollars that's in 
that's in development right now. In total, more than $12 billion worth of wind projects are proposed. The possibility of scaring off that enormous investment appears to have swayed legislators. But political support alone isn't enough for Wyoming's wind industry to boom. There are technical challenges as well. Bracing against the wind ripping through the Shirley Basin in southeast Wyoming, Juan Carlos Carpio reads the wind speed off a digital display. So that's fast. That's super. That's super fast. Yes, that's 100% on the turbines. Carpio is the CEO of a Venezuelan wind company called Viridis Eolia. In a tailored suit with a wind turbine lapel pin, he looks out of place in the middle of a pasture littered with cow patties and the bleached bones of dead pronghorn. But he's been spending a lot of time here recently. We came to the point of, of looking at Wyoming for the very, very excellent uh, wind resource. That was back in 2010. But wind was just the first consideration. Then came the technical challenges. Finding a location not in protected wildlife habitat with access to transmission lines. Permitting transmission lines is a very long process and uncertain. Carpio thinks he's found a way around needing new transmission lines. But other developers haven't been as fortunate. Most of the wind built in Wyoming would be sold to customers out of state. And hundreds of miles of new lines have been in the permitting process for years. Now, several of those are close to being approved. And that could open the floodgates. Construction has already begun on the largest onshore wind farm in North America, the Chokecherry Sierra Madre project near Saratoga. And there are a half dozen smaller projects in the works, including Carpio's, which at 700 turbines is actually quite large. See all that high plane over there? Yeah. And to the west, all until the eye can see. That's where the project would be. That's yeah. the whole project area, the wow. 90,000 acres. 90,000 acres. That's 140 square miles blanketed in wind turbines. If even half of the projects currently proposed are actually built, they would more than double the state's current wind generating capacity. And with the political and technical challenges closer to resolution, Wyoming wind is poised to boom. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. U.S. Senator Mike Enzi will soon be entering his 20th year in the U.S. Senate. Enzi has had a long political career that began as mayor of Gillette and included time in the Wyoming House and Senate. Enzi currently serves as the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee and is the former chair of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, among others. We conducted the interview just before the news of Donald Trump's taped comments on women was released, but despite those comments, his staff says he still supports Trump. We begin our conversation talking about changes he wants from a new president, such as rolling back EPA regulations. Well, those those definitely have to be attacked for Wyoming's sake, and the whole state's finding out that we've been relying on energy. As I travel around the state, I, I notice a, a, a marked difference in the way people are thinking about energy. Uh, the rest of the nation isn't feeling it as much. There are only a, a dozen states that are that are noticing that energy impact, but I, I we've been working with uh, with Trump to make sure that he understood the energy situation, and I, I think that he does, and there are several things that he could reverse immediately. There are others that we could send him that he could actually sign that have been vetoed before. 
it would make a difference for jobs and the and the economy. But and all of that, you know, goes back to the budget. How do you balance making sure that we don't get too far so we're still in protecting the environment while also allowing you know, business to continue. Well, well, the biggest thing we can do in that area is realize the inventiveness of the American people. There's a, there's a person right here, well, he's just outside of Laramie, who's figured out a way to, when the coal is being pulverized, to take out a bunch of the things that would cause a problem and pay for it with the precious metals that are in it. Uh, it's an interesting approach. I know it's another person that knows how to take that same stuff out of the fly ash and one of the things in coal is rare earth, and rare earth is needed for batteries, and we're always relying more and more on batteries. So inventiveness of the American people can solve any of those problems that are out there. There's a mercury and toxins um, regulation, and uh, there's supposed to be a cost-benefit analysis on all of those things. Well, the benefit from that is supposed to be about $500 million dollars, I don't know over what lifetime because they never disclose that to us, but the annual cost of complying with it is $10 billion. I'm pretty sure that a billion-dollar prize to solve that problem would have probably solved it instead of forcing companies to put that kind of money in each year to solve a problem that's pretty small, really. It does look, when you look at the market, like there are a lot of electricity companies, and, and probably because of the, the rules that have been put in place that are moving away from coal. Natural gas is very cheap right now, and for some, renewables is working. And, and we just saw the other day that electricity prices are down. So, I mean, this is, does seem to be something that, if you're looking at the bottom line, must be working out for them. <laughs> well, natural gas will be the next one attacked after they take care of coal. Uh, it's another carbon fuel. And again, there are things that can be done with natural gas to make it even better. Um, but early on, um, I worked with Black Hills Power because the city of Gillette bought some electricity from them. And they were looking at going to natural gas for their peaking power in winter at Rapid City until they realized that it was going to take as much natural gas for them to do just the peaking power as it took to heat the entire city of Rapid City. They were worried about overusing it and collapsing pipes at the same time, which would have put everybody out of energy. Visiting with U.S. Senator Mike Enzi, uh, this is from our energy team. I'm supposed to ask you this. Economists almost universally point to a carbon tax as the most market-friendly, efficient way to address some of these climate issues. Uh, many energy companies are currently pushing this, uh, Shell, Exxon, BP. You've opposed that. Uh, do you, how do you propose to address the problem of carbon emissions without some sort of a tax? There's an interesting experiment going on in, in Gillette right now. The Dry Fork Power Plant, which is one of the best uh, coal user, carbon-reducing plants in the United States, uh, has had a contest to see who could make coal carbon better. And I think that they approved over 20 projects to be done on 200 acres of their land up there. And uh, some of them are, are pretty unique. One of them is... Uh, from here, there are some people that know how to grow plants vertically instead of horizontally. And uh, when I met with them, I asked them how many they could put in a greenhouse. And they said, well, we can't. They'd suffocate. Not enough CO2. So I suggested maybe they see if there was a power plant that they could use the CO2 and the residual heat and grow more food. Food's going to be a problem for this country and for the world. 
And some things like that might provide some solutions. There are solutions out there. Do you still like investing in things like carbon capture and storage technology? Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that fascinates me about the current rule is that there's a limit to how many, of, how much they can save and get credit for. That, that's a positive incentive for doing what a carbon tax would do, but they want to cap it. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, also wanted to ask you about, uh, we, we just heard a l- the other day at one of the minerals meetings here in Wyoming about a number of wind projects proposed for Wyoming, I- including we've heard about the largest wind farm uh, possibly being here in this state. I don't know if I want to call you skeptical of wind development, but uh, maybe you've not been as big a fan as, as some other folks. Are, are you changing your views on that at all? Oh, I've, I've never opposed wind power. I just thought that they all ought to play on a level playing field. And uh, that hasn't been the case. We've, we've subsidized power enough so that in the states where the wind doesn't blow, the people don't need it to blow and they still make money off of the wind towers. That's wrong. California thinks that their, their only power comes from wind power. And one of the things that really disturbs me is on any CO2 emissions, we get penalized for coal. Any saving of CO2 by doing wind power, California gets the credit. They're not generating the electricity. They shouldn't get the credit. Wyoming should get the credit. Do you have an agreement that we do need to do something about climate change, though? And, and so to, to balance what, what you're talking about yeah. and, and to get to that point, what do you need to come up with? Well, I, I think we need to keep improving what we're doing. We need to be good stewards uh, for what we're doing. And uh, I'd prefer to see us uh, encouraging scientists to do some good things. I've, I've said for a long time that... There's been five, $5 billion a year spent to prove that there's climate change and $5 billion a year to prove that there isn't. If we spent that $10 billion on incentive just to clean things up, I think it would make a huge difference. Now, can I ask you about Hillary Clinton? You know, you've worked with her, as I said. Do you think she would be somebody who could work across the aisle better than what you've seen with President Obama? I, I know that she's very liberal. And I'm really concerned about the appointments that she'd make to the Supreme Court. And I've heard her make comments about coal ought to all stay in the ground. Doesn't give any credit for being able to do anything better with it. Um, after we had hundreds laid off in Gillette from the coal mines in one week, she said, if you're not a coal miner, this won't affect you. The next week, there were thousands laid off on the railroads. They didn't believe what she said. And now it's trickled down through the whole Wyoming economy so that we can see that um, she, she just doesn't have much experience at anything except government. She has proposed billions of dollars for aid for some of the coal communities. And when she made her trip to uh, Kentucky, she There's got... nothing that makes me more furious than that. I've talked to the coal, the, the, the coal miners, and what they really like is their job back. They'd like to be contributing to the economy, not getting paid by the economy. And they all know that there aren't many jobs out there that they can retrain for where they're going to make the kind of money that they made doing what they like to do. Uh, in, in Campbell County, the average wage for, for a coal miner is $80,000 a year. They can't find anything where they can train for that they'll make half that much. And, of course, if you've got these people working, they're paying, paying taxes, which help to keep government going. And uh, it, is, it is about jobs and the economy. We're in a, in a real bad spot on that. 
Change your attention to health care. You know, it's something that I know is near and dear to your heart. And as you've watched the Affordable Care Act over the last few years, we've had a number of conversations about reforms that possibly could happen, um, and they never go anywhere. No matter who's elected, do you see maybe some improvement in that law? Oh, there absolutely has to be improvement in that. Uh, when we started talking about it, there were 30 million people that didn't have insurance. Today, there are 30 million people that don't have insurance. It's a different 30 million. The 30 million that couldn't get insurance have insurance. The 30 million that had it can't afford it, so they don't have it. So there, there have to be changes, and uh, one of the biggest indications of that was Bill Clinton himself, who said this is kind of an abomination, that it isn't going to work, it needs changes. Uh, I'm just hoping when we do the changes, we don't you know, trundle out with another 2,500-page process on this thing. If, if we do good legislation, we need to do it the way Wyoming does a bit at a time, a step at a time. I worked with Senator Kennedy, and we came up with a 10-step process for doing health care. All that got thrown out when Obama knew that he had the idea. But uh, a lot of those would work and would increase competition, which is what we need. We've got to have increased competition on it. Getting down to one or no insurance companies in the state that will help people isn't going to do it. It's about the need to get care for people and to get it in a reasonable way, and not to put so many regulations on the doctors that they can't provide the kind of care that we expect. When I read some of the comments from the lawmakers in Washington, there is a, seems to be a large majority of them that just want to tear the whole thing up, which leads to this question. So what happens to the people that finally have insurance, and, and do they lose? How do you do this without screwing up their lives, too? Well, they, they have to be taken care of. Uh, you know, the, the people that couldn't get insurance before need to have insurance. The, uh, the kids that are covered to 26 is a good idea. So there, there are good things in there. Uh, they just have a lot of unintended consequences also in the bill. Uh, the things that they said, well, you'll know what's in it after we pass it. And that's exactly what happened. I, I hate it when we do these comprehensive bills Comprehensive means it's going to be so big that nobody's going to be able to comprehend it. Plus, it gives an opportunity to stick in a whole bunch of little things that people won't notice for a long time. And the president's noticed a bunch of things. Uh, that's why he does waivers. Um, a penalty to make, make it mandatory is, is wrong. How would being able to buy insurance across state lines impact our situation here in this state? I think it'd improve it uh, dramatically, um, both being able to buy across that way. And another proposal that I had was where people through uh, organizations or associations right. they belong to could group together to get a big enough group to have some negotiating capability with the insurance companies. And that's what they need to have. Why did that yeah. never get passed, adopted? Obamacare. <laughs> <laughs> I was well on the way to getting some of those things done and uh, had quite a bit of support for him. But uh, President Obama didn't like him. You know, Senator Mike Enzi, always nice chatting with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, sure. Enjoyed visiting with you. When we come back, an interview with the head of the National Endowment for the Arts, and we'll find out what happened to a project at the Women's Center in Lusk. This is Open Spaces.
Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. At the Wyoming Women's Center in Lusk, there's an average of four births per year. That's because some inmates are showing up to prison pregnant. Four years ago, plans were put into motion to address the situation by providing a mother-child unit where inmates could raise their children. However, as Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports, the nursery has remained vacant since renovations were completed in 2014. For some, the idea of a baby growing up in a prison setting sounds bizarre. But Wyoming Department of Corrections Director Bob Lampert says he thinks some may have the wrong idea. I think, first of all, when people envision a mother-child program in a prison setting, they, they think of you know an old-fashioned cell block with a mother with a child with all the other women around them. Lambert says the plan is to have it be more like a daycare style of residence where inmates and their children would reside in a separate facility from the rest of the prison. Lambert says the reason they want to do that is the bonding that happens between mother and child during the earliest stages of life can be a strong motivation against reoffending after the women leave prison. It can also keep children of inmates from ending up behind bars themselves. It is something that we recognize can have an impact on both the offender's success as well as the success of the children. The facility's design was modeled after a very successful mother-child program at the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women in York. Wyoming was set out to become the ninth state to develop such a program in 2010 when the Women's Center in Lusk began planning for a mother-child unit. The executive director of the Wyoming Association of Churches, Chessie Lee, was excited about the initiative. Lee had previously spent time in the prison when she had helped with a non-violence workshop. One of the main things women talked about was how much they missed their children and just anxiety about who was taking care of their children, were they being properly taken care of. Lee says her organization lobbied for the initiative, and in March 2012, the Wyoming State Legislature approved about $1 million to move the project forward. But the Department of Corrections has had problems staffing the program due to housing and funding issues, so the facility sits vacant. Lee says it's a frustrating situation. Yeah, it's just very, very disappointing. It feels like the million dollars that was used to renovate that building just kind of went down the tube. Now, a supporter of the initiative is reconsidering the usefulness of the program. Laramie State Representative Kathy Connolly is a member of the Joint Appropriations Committee who voted to support the effort. But recently, Connolly was a researcher for the Pathways from Prison study. During the study, 71 women were interviewed who either were or are currently an inmate at the Women's Center. The researchers wanted a better understanding of the inmates and their challenges. Connolly says she learned something interesting when the women were asked about the mother-child program. They weren't interested in it. Wow. There is this building right here mm-hmm. that isn't being used. What could it be used for? Why not do some different, better job skills training? You know, the women themselves are, you know, we've got some ideas for you. In other words, they'd prefer a facility that prepares them for leaving prison. Department of Corrections Director Lampert says there are no plans to repurpose the mother-child unit while they wait for the ability to staff it. However, Lampert says there is a small possibility that if funding reductions continue and the prison reached full capacity, they would use the building as a temporary minimal housing unit. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen.
The chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, Jane Chu, was recently in Laramie. The visit was one of hundreds of trips Chu has made to communities around the country to see firsthand the role the arts are playing. Chairman Chu stopped by our studios to talk with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. Why do you do these trips and, and what does it allow the NEA to do that, that wouldn't happen if you didn't do these trips? You know, the National Endowment for the Arts every year gives 40% of its budget off the top to the states. And we have a wonderful partner here with the Wyoming Arts Council and uh, Michael Lang, executive director. So I do get to see firsthand so much of the arts that uh, are being implemented They're thriving across America, but they're thriving in so many different ways. So that's been a real treat. And the other is to really deepen our relationship with each state arts council. I imagine you you are beginning to get a sense of what the state of the arts in America is. There's a couple of things that do come to mind. Uh, And one of them is uh, we want to dispel the myth that the arts are tanking. It's anything but that. They're thriving uh, in so many different ways. And people are participating, however, in uh, many traditional ways, but also new ways. For example, uh, the most recent numbers show that three quarters of all American adults, that's about 167 million people, participate in the arts first in America through uh, some kind of electronic uh, digital, uh, television, uh, radio. And so that made us want to make sure we were mindful. Uh, We've had grants ever since uh, the National Endowment for the Arts began 50 years ago to support uh, new media, uh, television, radio for sure. And now we've expanded as well to include digital. Uh, So we pay attention to those kind of things. There's also a, a shift in the ways Uh, many artists are engaged and create that is different from the way it was before the internet. So the internet has opened up new avenues from self-publishing to uh, marketing in its own ways and creating different networks. We are seeing a shift and we want to make sure we're paying attention to how do we make sure that people participate in the arts and how can we jumpstart other ways that the arts are thriving, especially now with the change of before internet versus after. But is it difficult for a centralized government agency to be nimble like that and to be responsive to, or to to not have sort of boilerplate approaches? It isn't because of a couple of things. One is, again, our wonderful state Arts Council partners. But I'm very proud of our process that we use whenever National Endowment for the Arts grants are made. We have a three-step process, and the first folks who read the proposals that come in in all the different categories are citizens. These are experts in the field in their different categories, and they make the first recommendations. And then the second is another set of experts, our National Council members who come from all over the nation as well. And then the third is the chair. So With that three-step process, we're shaping the arts in America together. This is not a cultural minister or anyone coming in and telling you what art is and art is not. We're shaping it together, and that's another reason I love to travel and make sure that uh, our networks and our partners know how important they are. Let me ask you about creative placemaking. I know that that's a big initiative for the NEA as well. Um, And this goes beyond just... Uh, supporting arts agencies. This is very much about how the arts interact with the place that they are in. 
There was a time in the 1970s and 80s, too, where it seemed like many downtowns appeared to be much more desolate than they were uh, in the 1940s or 50s. And so slowly but surely, people started realizing that the downtowns still had a role of being the pulse, the heartbeat of the community. And so how could we get more people back downtown to participate when everybody had spread out in so many other places? And here came the arts, even if it's a one-time program or a festival. So the arts became a way to spark vitality in the community. And that creative placemaking is representing that concept. And look at the wonderful murals that are going on in Laramie. Uh, Those kind of activities not only show a, a visual symbol of there's something going on in the quality of life here. Uh, it brings people together and they say, you know, I want to live there. So that's that creative placemaking concept. How do you make the argument to a community that has limited financial resources? How do you make the argument to say, no, put a chunk of it over here towards the arts? And I know you have potholes to be filled. How do you make that argument that money should be spent on the arts? We would never say it's an either or. It's important to make sure that those physical infrastructure pieces are part of a thriving community. But how do you get the energy and the spirit to be able to come together and say, this is my community and I want to make it happen? The arts can spark that vitality and that can spark that confidence where people are saying, yeah, I want to make this happen. So one thing leads to another, more and better beget more and better. So the arts are a powerful, probably one of the most, probably one of the most affordable ways to bring that vitality together versus something else. So Chairman Chu, there's a lot of optimism in what you talk about. You say the arts are thriving in America, but what are the challenges? The challenges really are to have people, uh, we'd be really eager to have people understand that the arts are not off in a silo by themselves. They're not off in a corner. They do belong to all of us. When you start seeing the arts um, with kids who may have come from very few social or economic opportunities, even the playing field in the classrooms academically uh, because of the arts. And we start seeing the ways they're connected. That's at the heart of the Creativity Connects exchange. Nobel laureates in the sciences are 17 times more likely to have actively participated in the arts than other scientists. And so when you start seeing that it adds a dimension to the ways we can think, even if we're not participating in the arts as an artist, a professional artist, that would be our greatest opportunity. We see it as an opportunity to spread that word. That's NEA Chairman Jane Chu speaking with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the program or segments again, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org and just simply click on Open Spaces. Anna Rader is our web editor. We always appreciate hearing about good story ideas and interview suggestions. You can send them to us through that website. Don't forget that Wednesday night we'll carry the next presidential debate and Thursday it's the U.S. House debate. They both begin at 7 p.m. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.